I would like to start by giving a heartfelt apology on behalf of the Football Association and the whole English game. To all survivors that this happened to you within football. No child should ever have experienced the abuse you did. What you went through was horrific. The review into sexual abuse in English football is complete. There were significant institutional failings at the FA. What can football and sport more widely learn now from the scandal? On this edition of Sport Unlocked, the fallout from the abuses that shame football. I'm Rob Harris. Hello and welcome to the podcast digesting the week's sports news. At the end of a week when disturbing cover-ups and abuses in football have been set out by the Football Association's inquiry into historic abuse in the game. The solicitor for some of the survivors, Dino Nocciavelli, will be joining us later in the episode. Minky Warden from Human Rights Watch will also be providing a global perspective on abuse in sport and will also ask her about the latest Tokyo Olympic sexism scandal. Plus, later, there's a third interview on Sport Unlocked this week with the head of the Belgium League on a potential merger with the Dutch competition. But first, a look at some of the other sports news issues of the week and alongside me as ever is Martin Ziegler. Welcome and you've had some good news this week, Martin. Yeah, sort of fairly significant moment uh, on Thursday. I uh, I went and had I got the AstraZeneca jab. I I uh, was more than comfortable to take the the five in two million risk or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, no. So yeah, very pleased had had the vaccine, and um, yeah. So it's all looking the light is at the end of the tunnel, and you know it's one of the benefits of being plus fifty. So uh, you, you guys will have a bit of time to wait, I guess. Well, that's me and Tarek Panja who joins us yet again this week. That's big news, that isn't it? Sign of uh, uh, momentum. So. Martin, you're you're leading the way. We'll wait and see how you go, and then Rob and I will will follow in your slipstream in in due course. I hope. But actually, we've heard from Gareth Southgate this week saying that players, even their teens and twenties, should be getting uh, jabbed. He thinks perhaps it would help things ahead of the Euros for them to uh, jump the queue almost. How do we feel about that, or how will it go down with people if if as we've seen with perhaps some supply delays that even the pause in giving them to under 50s and priority goes to players i think it's a very brave statement um by gareth southgate i mean i know a lot of people probably think that in football and i know some premier league executives i've spoken to believe that uh, it would be a a good thing um for for the sort of the the industry as a whole and the country as a whole but um We've already seen that where Chesterfield, I think, got some vaccines because they were they would have gone to waste otherwise, and there was a bit of an outcry over that. So for a sort of highly paid England players to jump the queue and um, be given priority, I think will not go down very well with the general public. Yeah, I, I think it was his framing of 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 the work they're doing. The as if it was the Lord's work. These these footballers are, are, are toiling on behalf of of the nation. They've continued to work and take risks while um, those of us who are working from home are working from home. Um, but but, that, but, but <laughs> by that logic, you would say perhaps the people who are working in um, on the buses, in the supermarkets and, and places like that should be um, ahead of the queue as well, whatever, whatever the age is. Because what Southgate was saying is that these players, by travelling for their clubs and now for their country, they're taking greater risks than, than most of the 
the, the public at large, and that's why they should be um, now um, pushed to the to the head of the queue. The other thing is, are people going to be angry? And the answer is, of course they are, because we live in an age where people are always angry, right? So what, whatever he said, whatever the issue is, you're going to have two binary forces screaming at each other, probably on 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 Facebook or Twitter. So it's a bit of a no-win situation. He's he's lobbed an idea in there, and I guess um, there's probably a grey area here, but we. We might not see any greys these days. We'll pick a side and, 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 and stick with that. Where athletes should be in the queue for vaccinations is going to be a huge issue for sports in the coming months. It's not quite a pressing issue for the NFL. Their new season doesn't begin for another six months. But the American football leadership has been busy this week securing its financial future. They've gone and wrapped up TV deals for 11 seasons worth, and wait for this, it's incredible, $113 billion. All the major networks are involved, CBS, ESPN, ABC, Fox, NBC, and Amazon. And the streaming platform has the prime Thursday night football games. It's a really significant moment, this. A really long deal for the NFL. On all levels, it's really turned heads, hasn't it? That number is is enormous. Um, and one of, one of the reasons they've been able to do it um, is... The fact that they're able to sell rights in these in a block of 10, 11 years um, in, in European sports, football, for example, typically domestic contracts are just three years long because of local laws mainly. Um, and that, that's fine. If you can have um, a, a long term deal, you can um, generate a lot more revenue because you get more certainty from the broadcast. They'll invest more. And, and, and they know they've got that certainty. The other thing, there was another really interesting stat to explain it. So these incumbent broadcasters mainly, not, not Amazon because you wouldn't count them as an incumbent, but the others who've, who've renewed on, on sort of double your money terms, there's a reason for that as well. The NFL games are some of the most watched television programming in the United States by far. 76 of the most 100 watched television programs last year were American football game. So that explains why. Um, and then you look at Amazon as well. They've been given this exclusive round of Thursday night games, and it is their biggest outlay in sports yet. They're paying about $1.5 billion uh, every year for these. Um, so if you are the NFL, you'll be, you'll be really happy. You've, not only have you kept the incumbents, you've got this streaming platform on board as well. It's a very rosy future for the NFL, which, um, like other sports, has suffered without um, supporters in the grounds to the tune of about four billion. Um, all, all of that is going to be wiped away thanks to thanks to this enormous TV deal. There's got to be a lot of leagues and sports looking quite enviously and hopeful about the way Amazon have invested. They've taken over the Thursday night football and the amount of money they're pumping in, particularly as. We've heard concerns about leagues like the Premier League, about whether or not they'll be able to get a significant uplift. This must be the the, 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 the ray of optimism for the future they're looking for. Well, I think especially the Amazon element to it. I mean, the Premier League, obviously they've had to delay the, the sale of their next three-year rights. Um, they will be desperately hoping that Amazon, is, ha having dipped their turn in the water of Premier League football, is going to come back in a big way because... Actually, the, the amount Amazon spent was was per match is is very small compared to the Sky and BT deal. Um, so, um, every all the analysts that we've you know we've spoken about this before on the podcast are expecting a decrease in the, the value of the, the domestic rights for the Premier League. 
UEFA, I think they're hoping their new um, reform Champions League is going to be a, a result in a, in a big boost in theirs. But I think um, there, there is definitely hope for this. I mean, it's quite interesting um, that the NFL, the NFL model is, is that they, you know, it's not just one broadcaster, is it? Or one main broadcaster. They seem to spread it very, very widely. I wonder if we'll see a bit more of that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. There, there has been kind of some frustration with, with, with certain club executives in, in Europe and, and, and in England that, that there's been this kind of rush to the highest bidder and that doesn't really preserve a long-term relationship with, with, with multiple broadcasters. What the NFL has showed, a greater degree of creativity here, um, kept the relationships and by not rushing just for the highest paycheck immediately, and you've seen what that can um, yield later on, and speaking of creativity, what they've also done with all these broadcasters is they've got a rotation for the Super Bowl. Um, ESPN, for example, it's paid the highest increase uh, of, of all the incumbents, but it's also been given added to the, to the rotation. So if, you, you've got, if, you, if you've got this kind of slate of must-watch programming, you, you've got a degree of creativity and flexibility that you can kind of build into your future um, planning. Um, and I think the NFL have done that really well. Perhaps um, UEFA, who are going to embark on um, these Champions League reforms and these new formats and also looking for new broadcasters, they might uh, do well to, to look at this, as would Premier League and the other big leagues. Well, now to the top story this week on Sport Unlocked, and it's a distressing and painful one. We've had the findings of an English football inquiry that's exposed the scale of the sickening abuse of trust by coaches who sexually abuse young players starting out in the game. Clive Sheldon QC concluded in a 710-page report that football did not do enough to protect children from paedophile coaches in what he called an institutional failure by the Football Association. And he also singled out clubs for criticism, including Chelsea and Manchester City. This was an inquiry that looked at eight of the most prolific perpetrators of male sexual abuse in the period 1970 to 2005. Now, we heard him at the top of the programme, and here he is again now, the current chief executive of the FA, Mark Bullingham, apologising this week to survivors who are let down by clubs and authorities. We should have brought a child protection policy in place. We should have trained people so they knew how to deal with queries. We should have encouraged a culture where people could report instances and people were aware of the risks that were out there, such as we have today. This is a dark day, but we are referring to non-recent cases. And I think Clive Sheldon is very, very clear that our failures are predominantly from 1995 to 2000, and at the same time pointing out that we are offering leading safeguarding standards today. So we have to hold our hands up and apologise for the mistakes of the past, make sure we don't repeat them, but that's not to say that football is uh, not in a safe environment today. It is. Joining me to assess the fallout from the inquiry is Dino Nocciavelli. He's a solicitor who's represented many of the victims who came forward after Andy Woodward in 2016 told of the abuses he suffered at the hands of Barry Bennell, a coach later called by a judge a devil incarnate. Dino, how did you assess Sheldon's review? Do you think he went far enough? And how do we reflect now on the damage caused to so many lives? So looking at the positives to start off with, it's good that the Football Association has shone a light on some of these issues and that's a positive and I think if any survivors listening that um, it's good that the Football Association are finally listening 
actually, and the authorities are, and we are in a much different time now, uh, and I'm grateful than we were a number of years ago. So that's a positive. However, there are issues with the reporters. They're always going to be, and actually, some of the key parts are that you know it stops in 2005, and for those survivors um, who I know are out there, and that I have spoken to survivors post 2005, they are in essence excluded from the report. For female abuse survivors and others, they are not covered to the right extent. Um, for grassroots football, which again we know where most abuse takes place, unfortunately, is at grassroots. They predominantly are not included in this. And the Football Association, of course, are responsible for all levels. Those are issues. When you look at the recommendations, the query is, is that after four, four and a half years, do the recommendations go far enough? I agree with them. Of course I agree with them because I think they're important and helpful. But, and it's an important but, there's two, in, two issues. One is that safeguarding courses are very important. However, as we've seen with Dario Gradi, I assume and trust he was going on those safeguarding courses for how many years? And yet he didn't know an adult putting their hand down a child's shorts or trousers is wrong or an assault. That, that's terrifying, to be totally frank. And it does show if you're going to these courses, you can't just go and nod along. You do need to make sure people understand. Um, and secondly, it identifies failings, but it doesn't identify sanctions. And actually, that is unusual for any level of society. If you can see that someone's failed, been let down, the question is, where are the punishments? Where are the fines? Where are the suspensions? And again, going back to Grady, and I don't want to target him too much, but he's a good example of someone who allegedly has failed. Um, we don't know what he's suspended for. The report could have dealt with this and should have dealt with it, and he didn't do so. So even though I've said the report is a positive step in, in raising awareness and breaking that silence at the same time, it, it's not black and white. There are still elements of grey, and that's really disappointing after nearly half a decade of this report being worked on. To fill in some of the background, Dario Gradi was the manager between 1983 and 2007 at Crewe, where Bernal worked in the 1980s and 90s. What Clive Sheldon found is Grady was not involved in a cover-up, but he should have done more to investigate those concerns about Bernal. We did finally hear from Grady on Friday. He said he apologised for not recognising any signs of abuse at the time, and he did express regret for the harm that was caused to young people and it not being discovered, and he did express sympathy for the survivors. Tarek? It's just absurd, isn't, isn't it? I mean, as a grown man... You don't really need to go on a safeguarding course to know that putting your hands into down someone's trousers or up their skirt or whatever is is abhorrent and it's something that is a crime. Whatever course you go on, if if someone can't realise that, isn't isn't the next point that the people who are overseeing these people should be paying a closer eye? You can put people on a number of courses, like you say, but that's never going to be enough unless there's going to be follow up and and people coming to. Um, observe how they work. Uh, and that, that's the issue. So first off, you're right. Any adult should be aware of it. Grady apparently wasn't. And actually, he's remained in the game for a long period of time and no one realised that somehow, allegedly, again. And I'm trying to be careful about it because it just seems totally bizarre. It, it, it comes across as very strange, very unbelievable, actually, that this could be the case. But you're right. These courses can inform people, but it's not just about informing, it's about applying it. And when we're looking at all of the failings against all of the different clubs, it's 
not about knowing right and wrong potentially it's applying it doing it and, and going well this is wrong i am going to act on it that final step didn't happen for far too long for far too many people against far too many clubs and that is truly astounding and these are the ones which we know so this is a type tip of the iceberg there may be others other instances maybe things happening in grassroots football we just don't know about it and that but someone like Grady, who's an elderly man who's been in the game for decades how did no one know that this was taking place how did no one know this was his view on things it's it's astounding and what it means is that people have suffered abuse for so many years and people have you know been let down that can't happen in the future and what we do need to do is to bring in something like manager reporting which i've campaigned for along with others for years and that if you're aware of concerns if you're aware of allegations of child abuse there should be a criminal sanction because it is criminal to let children down in this manner for far too long we've left it to abuse survivors and put the pressure on them to deal with these issues by themselves when actually as shown by the report adults may have known could have acted but instead they will get you know told off in the report and that's it there's nothing else comes from it and, and what it does it means it puts pressure on survivors still so if it's happening today it's still the same problem for a child of 10 as it was back in the 80s or 90s but also it means for that whistleblower who potentially wants to do the right thing, sport doesn't allow it. It doesn't give them that kind of protection to act on it. Um, and that might be a kind way of looking at lots of these incidents, but it, it's astounding. We've been relying upon the morals and ethics of people within sport to act on it. it. just hasn't happened, as shown by the report. You know, looking abroad, you see US gymnastics um, and then looking outside of sports, it seems where there, where, wherever there's access, there seems to be scandal. Are we going to see um, a lot more if we start just sort of looking behind the, the veil at some of some other sports federations in the country as well? I, I think that's sadly so true and so painfully true. So if you just look at football as, as a starting point, the report stops in 2005. And as a result, when we look at the development of the female game and the professional um, standards and, and pay, etc., that was much later. And as a result, this report does um, accidentally, perhaps, to be kind, as, as, as excluded the female game from this report. So that's the first point. The second point is that lots of these abusers abused in other countries. So a banal abuse in America, Spain, Higgins abused abroad, um, uh, Frank Roper abused abroad, wherever it was Thailand or New Zealand or elsewhere. Um, and, and actually, this report is the English FA. It doesn't cover those other jurisdictions. So not only are we missing out potentially on sex, but also on country. And then to answer your question openly in that there are issues in other sports. Um, and what we see, unfortunately, is a sport-specific inquiries on an ad hoc basis. And what that means is that whether it's the Lawn Tennis Association in North Wales or the current one which is going on in gymnastics in this country, there will be others, unfortunately. What we do need to look at is sport as a whole. And then also looking at a wider picture, wherever an adult's placed in a position of trust, they're placed in a position where they can abuse. And we see this, whether it's um, within you know, religious institutions, whether it's within the private schools, the scout association or sport, that does give people the opportunity to abuse and they do then abuse. And if you remember the movie Spotlight, with Mark Ruffalo and lots of others talking about childhood sexual abuse within Boston and Catholic churches, take out priests, put in football coaches, 
And you can see not only the same abuse, similar impact, but also this issue about people knowing, not acting, and people suffering as a result. Um, I think it's a really pertinent question you raise, and what we do need to do is take a really wide approach at this and consider it carefully, because otherwise we will have another report in 10, 20 years, sadly looking to abuse in the female game within football or others. And we do need to learn and, and to be proactive. And I think that's the key thing, actually, which is from all of this. The FA have looked into this and they've been reactive to an extent. But what about rugby? What about... Um, you know, tennis, rowing, all these other sports. Why do we always have to be reactive to it? Why can't we learn from this and go, let's look at our sport. What can we do proactively? All we've heard about from is from football this week, with total respect. Um, if you can see it, I can see it. You would hope other sport heads would and try to stop the car crash and stop the impact before it happens. But that doesn't happen, unfortunately. What's the role and the responsibilities of an organisation like FIFA, or the IOC, the umbrella body for all sport, in terms of what can they do now to build on this report and, and, and to address the most concerns about not being as reactive but actually proactive? I think for the wider organisations, um, they, they do work very slowly. And what I mean by that, if you look at things like um, doping as a kind of neutral point randomly actually in this discussion, you do see specific sports getting affected. So whether it's cycling and doping, and we've had a huge history of that, other sports do seem slower. And actually, we do need to take a kind of um, a gold standard across all sports. So it's a very valid question as to what they do. And again, if we look at the Italian FA and, and, and Spanish and so on, they haven't reacted to what's happening being in, in England and, and lots of the reports you see when you're looking abroad is that we don't have the same issue. We don't have the same awareness. And that is just complacent, unfortunately, that the abuse does happen, but it's just not being picked up on or people don't feel able to disclose to the same level. And, and that is a valid, very valid point, actually, in that what can those organisations do to really step in? And especially when you look at the English FA, they've admitted failings. They've admitted they've let children down. What are the punishments going to be for that? Because this is part and parcel of what the Football Association is for. It's for people playing football and we've let them down. We failed them. Looking at those recommendations and some of the points you make, that would actually be advantageous in terms of making it an offence not to report concerns that you do know about. Are these things that other countries around the world should be looking at enforcing? And it's something, as we say, for IOC and FIFA to start to engage with multiple countries to look at these recommendations, what you're saying and others are saying, to get some sort of standard expectations of policies in place around the world? Yeah, this mandatory reporting point is not just for football or sport, it's for every person who's in a position of trust. So teachers, scoutmasters, um, everyone. It's really important. And actually, to answer your question, Rob, it, it's not that they need to act, it's actually we need to act. The most states in America, Australia, most of the developed world already has this in place. It's us, actually, um, who are not on page with everyone else. It's us, actually, who need to catch up on it. And it's us who need to stop. You know, these stories keep on happening. These lives are still being affected. And, and as a country, for some reason, we are not acting on, we're not listening, we're not doing the steps that are needed. And, and the other thing which is important, along with mandatory reporting, something else which I'm campaigning for is an independent external body to investigate allegations within sport. I think for far too long we've, 
We've asked sport to regulate itself and to manage itself. And sadly, whether it's tennis, gymnastics, football, you name the sport, we, we just can't allow that to take place anymore. It just doesn't work. And I think what it would enable is that it would instill trust and confidence in the system. Survivors could know it's being done properly. And we would then see everything, total transparency. And, and I think it needs to be done. And, I, and it's been outstanding for far too long. Interestingly, the Manchester City um, also had a, their own QC-led inquiry, uh, as Chelsea have done as well. Southampton have got a, a, an outstanding one by Bernardo's. Um, Manchester City, they, they published theirs um, simultaneously at the same time as the Sheldon report. Um, and they, they, they apologised afterwards. In, as part of that, they, they said that they've got a, um, a, a process where survivors can have um, have compensation but from what i understand you're you're sort of involved in a, in a case which is is due to be heard in the high court in october against manchester city so could you tell us tell us as much as you can about that i know there's probably details are limited but whatever you can tell us would be interesting yeah so it's important to note how many clubs actually have done their own um inquiries or reports and and um i think the report indicated that there were 17 football clubs and you're right martin to identify only two actually have published them to date um southampton are working bernardo's in relation to their one and the question is actually will all of these clubs now publish their full findings someone like um, watford in relation to their physiotherapist will edwards is still outstanding um and they're saying that coronavirus has affected that so that's just the first point. We do need to see entire transparency from all the clubs which have been affected. In relation to Manchester City, it's difficult to comment specifically. There's ongoing legal proceedings. Um, and I've noted their reports being published. And, and you're right. The facts are that we have got a trial. We're told that the various settlements have been reached with individuals. What's the necessity to go to court? There's no necessity to go to court. What we want... And what all survivors of abuse are want, sorry, are um, an acknowledgement. The abuse took place, an acceptance of responsibility. Um, they do want some appreciation of the impact on their life, and that's what we're talking about: compensation, damages. They want an apology, which is um, unconditional, and they want action to be taken and genuine action. And I think it's only when you look at all those points that you will get. Um, you know, a true sense of closure and justice and that's been achieved against a number of different clubs and as I mean I can't comment on Manchester City specifically because of legalities but I think all clubs should be wanting that and all clubs should be acting on it Manchester City have done a number of things which are really positive to be fair to them but um, you know I hope for my clients and all survivors that we're able to progress matters and to get that closure and justice which they've been waiting for for far too long. So can I, can I ask you about the victims now, um, all, all these years later? You know, you, you must have encountered um, so many of them now. What, 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 are, what are the, it's, a, it's a quite a hard question in a blanket way to answer, but what, what, are, what impact has it had on their sort of lives as adults now? How has it impacted their, their years after? A lot of them obviously didn't become professional footballers, some did, etc. but the, the trauma of that childhood must be um, uh, long-lasting. It sadly is. And I think as soon as an adult's touched a child, um, their life goes, their life does go on a different path. And there's no way of looking at it any differently, unfortunately. And it kind of goes in two ways. And one is the kind of invasion of their privacy, 
often this is their first sexual experience. Um, it's distorted, it's difficult, it's painful. Often it brings along substantial psychiatric injuries. A number of survivors sadly um, will try to cope with the kind of impact and, da and damage by you know, using drink or drugs. A number of them self-harm, a number attempt suicide or, or do actually commit suicide as a result. And it also affects everything else. It's not just the kind of personal pain and damage which is caused, but also when you look at their careers, you know, not becoming a footballer is one thing, but also when you do enter your profession, whatever it is, if you're a teacher, if you work in Tesco's or any other supermarket or, you know, you become a lawyer, um, it affects people who are in a position of authority to you, how you interact with males or females. It affects how you manage people. It affects your ability to sustain employment, to ask for promotions, to deal with pressure. It affects your ability to have relationships. Um, and it doesn't just affect the victim or survivor. Sadly, it affects everyone, like a ripple in a pond, if that makes sense. So if, you know, for parents, children, partners, it affects everyone. And often people don't know why people are acting in that manner. So actually parents won't know. Parents will just understand their child was fine and happy and enjoying sport and life. And suddenly something snaps and they just change and they just become very um, difficult, disobedient and happy. And actually you don't know for decades. And often you do see families breaking up, relationships ending because parents don't understand um, or children don't understand and as a result it is truly and often a kind of a lifetime impact not just on that victim or survivor but also on those around him. Dini I appreciate your time thank you for joining us on Sport Unlocked. And I, I thank you all for having me on and being able to discuss this really important issue. Dina Nocciavelli a solicitor at Bolt Bird and Kemp who's a specialist in abuse cases in sport and for anyone listening affected by any of these issues the National Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in the UK is on 0800 023 2642. Also, there's the National Association for People Abused in Childhood. Their support line is 0808 801 0331. And the FA also have an email, FASheldonReport at the FA.com, which they provide for safeguarding support. Joining us now for greater insight from Human Rights Watch is Minky Warden, who oversees sports policy there, heavily involved in many rights cases around the world involving FIFA. Um, welcome to the pod, Minky. Thanks for having me. Uh, we were just talking in the previous segment about the abuse cases in English football with the Sheldon report coming out this week. How, how did you assess that from, from your perspective in terms of where it fits within the global game and particularly um, the wider concerns it perhaps might raise? Yes. Well, um, so I think it very much fits into the wider concerns. And let, let me say a few words about Human Rights Watch's research and our role in sport. Um, first of all, we, we bring the research about what abuses are happening in football. And we're often, uh, because we cover you know, more than 100 countries worldwide, we're often the ones who know what's going on in the Haiti Football Federation or the Afghan Football Federation um, or, in the, um, or in Japan, for example. So we're in a good position to know what the abuses are, and we're also in a good position to know what, what the recommendations are to fix these problems. And 
we concentrate on FIFA and football in particular because it's the world's most popular sport and increasingly women and girls are being encouraged to, to join. And the problem is that there are um, not meaningful prote protections in place. FIFA has a, a system called the Guardians or Guardians, which is essentially a set of wonderful guidelines that are not binding. And the problems that we've seen in um, British football and English football um, are uh, replicated around the world, according to our research. And let me say that Human Rights Watch has documented two football federation presidents in the last three years who have been credibly accused of raping the teenagers on the under 15, under 17, under 20 women's national teams. And the problem is really one, like in, like in uh, uh, English football, the problem is one of governance. It's that there are no meaningful systems for reporting. There aren't meaningful systems when reports are made within FIFA uh, for addressing the abuses. And it goes into, uh, it goes to the, these complaints have to go to the ethics committee, which is really set up to deal with match fixing. So these, you know, we should all think, what is the experience of a teenage girl who is calling to say that her coach or the Federation president is touching her inappropriately? What access to remedy and justice do, the, do these often girls have? And um, uh, football really needs systems to deal with the reality that there are not adequate protections in sports. And where do you think FIFA have particularly acted inadequately when addressing those issues with the FA in Haiti? Um, the Football Federation president, uh, Yves Jean Bart, was there for decades. He was there in, um, in violation of FIFA's term limits. He was reelected in January of 2020. Um, and now um, dozens of women have come forward to say that he sexually harassed them or sexually abused them over a decades long period. Other vice presidents of the Federation were also raping and sexually exploiting the women's national team. And we had we also have taken testimony from men and boys who were abused in Haiti. So these these are safeguards that are needed for um, kids and adults of all ages. And um, I think there, there's some very simple fixes for this that, that certainly Human Rights Watch has presented to FIFA but need to be taken seriously. And it's that FIFA controls the money. So millions of dollars are given out every year under the so-called FIFA Forward Program to develop women's football in particular. But it's given to a bunch of corrupt male heads of football federations. And by the way, those are the same those are the same gentlemen who will be voting on the Women's World Cup and the FIFA Congress. So I think until there's a fundamental overhaul, um, including human rights background checks to make sure that you don't have warlords, to make sure that you don't have pedophiles, to make sure that you don't have human rights abusers in these roles, um, uh, reforms are only superficial unless they really address the underlying problems of uh, abuse and the opportunities for abuse in sport. So the, the simple, one simple fix that could be put in place tomorrow on an administrative basis is to tie the protections in the FIFA Guardians program to the distribution of the FIFA Forward program, to, to the FIFA Forward money. So that alone would put in place an enormous protection for women and girls, and of course, men and boys in, in football worldwide. And a lot of the work you're doing at Human Rights Watch is trying to hold these people to account, trying to 
bring justice and ensure the safety of so many in sport. Minky, I would like to turn attention to another issue, the Tokyo Olympics. And we've had another resignation this week from an organising committee official for sexist comments. This time it was the Games' creative director, Hiroshi Sasaki, saying in a meeting that the well-known entertainer Naomi Watanbe could perform in the Somi as an Olympic. We'd already had the president of the organising committee, Yoshimori, being forced to resign in February after saying women talk too much in meetings. What have you made of all this? Yes. Well, thank you for calling attention to this. So just to repeat, that's two, count them, two top leaders of the Tokyo Olympics uh, in the Japanese Olympics and sports system who have been forced to resign. Uh, They didn't go voluntarily over sexist comments. Um, And there are a couple of uh, uh, aspects of this that I'd like to draw, draw out for your listeners. Um, The first one is that these comments have been described as a gaffe or a joke, Um, and they are not a gaffe. This is a verbal expression of national policy to exclude women from positions of leadership in sport, um, in boardrooms, in uh, in, uh, every aspect of society that matters. So, um, and the numbers, for example, from the World Economic Forum back that up you know, uh, about 5% of women in the C-suite and CEO uh, or other positions. And I think uh, Human Rights Watch, as you know, did a report on child abuse in sport in Japan last July. And the findings of that report, I think, were very important. One is, um, to repeat again, the Olympics has the same governance problem that sport does. That means that there are men in these positions where women and girls would have to call in to report abuse. Um, but uh, just to, to look for a second at former Prime Minister Mori's comment, Um, He said that women talk too much and therefore they shouldn't be allowed to have positions in sports federations. And Human Rights Watch has a Tokyo office. We have staff who've been involved with the the planning for the Tokyo Olympics for a number of years. And this has borne out their experience. Um, There aren't women around the table for decision making when it matters. And so therefore decisions are taken that have negative effects for women and girls. And, and one of the big problems, uh, I think, globally, just to take it from Japan to globally, um, uh, you know, uh, the problem of equal pay or pay at all in sport. Um, that was certainly a big issue at the Women's World Cup in 2019, but it's a global issue because what Human Rights Watch research has shown is that women, when women aren't paid or women and girls aren't paid for the work that they're doing on the women's national team or in professional football, they are uh, subject to abuse. So in Haiti, for example, we found that the Football Federation president was um, uh, offering girls cleats and uniforms and underwear in exchange for sexual favors. So the fact that these girls are impoverished and have no sheets to sleep on and no food means that they are extremely vulnerable to the powerful men who run these federations. Um, And that's consistent even in a relatively wealthier country like Japan. The the women and girls really, um, it's not just that these sports administrators are making comments demeaning women, it's that the entire structure in Japan is one of toxic masculinity, demeaning and running down women and not paying them what they're worth. Minky, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for joining us on Sport Unlocked. 
Thanks a lot. Happy to happy to talk to your your audience. I'm still joined by Tarek Panja and Martin Ziegler. Martin, how damaging do you think these sexism scandals have been for the Tokyo Olympics? It's only in recent weeks they've appointed 12 women to the organizing committee to increase the female membership from 20% to 42%. I think it's uh, another another reflection of, of the sort of arriving at this um, realization very, very late in the day that things have changed a lot in sport. It, it's not a no longer the preserve of, of middle-aged men um, in, in suits and you know, you can't just get away with the the sort of structure that we've seen in Tokyo. That's not going to be permitted anymore, I don't think, because I think there's going to be so much focus on this and the, this this latest sexism row, which has cost the, the the head of the ceremonies his job, is it's just a reflection of the fact that things are going to be changing very much. Um, Tokyo have got a huge amount of of uh, headaches to deal with. This is another very very unwelcome one. It shows you the focus that these games bring on countries and host cities. If there's any positive to take, it shows that there is some momentum in, in Japan in terms of women's rights and, and, and sort of tackling sexism. That perhaps the only positive to take from it. Let's see if, if that endures. Thanks, Tarek. Well, turning back to European football now and the decision by clubs in Belgium to explore a possible merger with Dutch teams to form a cross-border men's league. It would be called the Benny League and Deloitte have calculated it could generate up to 400 million euros in TV and commercial rights. Joining Sport and Lot to provide more details is the CEO of Belgium's Pro League. Welcome to the pod, Pierre Francois. Thank you very much. So Pierre, what's the prospects of this potential merger happening? As you have said, it's a potential merger. I have to be clear, no decision uh, has been till now made. If we decide to merge, if, because you know it's not decided yet, it's certainly to become the sixth league in Europe, not to be seven or eight. Uh, that's the purpose, of course. If we don't have this aim, it's not necessary to, to analyze anything. That's the long-term approach we have. And what are the key questions that you'll be analysing? The first one is the access list for European football, UEFA competitions. The second point is the more value of the media rights, of the commercial rights, because we have to uh, catch a more value, not only for the participating clubs, but also for the others. Uh, who will know? Who won't play more against the the best clubs uh, of Belgium? And the last point is, of course, the the answer of the Belgium competition authorities uh, on the project. Then uh, there's a lot of work, but there is a positive approach now uh, from the Belgium Pro League with uh, a push of uh, all the clubs, perhaps five of them uh, prefer to, to, to wait a little bit, but uh, there is no, no vote, uh, only uh, yes, five, if I may say, waiting positions. That's uh, uh, a huge process, but also a positive uh, aim for all our clubs 
on a long-term vision. And uh, I'm quite happy that uh, this time there were no uh, dispute inside the Pro League, but only uh, a positive approach. What's the aim for this? What's the big objective in doing this? Is it because you've seen the other leagues like the Premier League and La Liga go so far ahead in terms of revenue generation that you need indeed, to think of something? Indeed, always more money for the clubs uh, who will participate in the Champions League and uh, the gap between uh, those leagues and the Belgian Pro League becomes bigger and bigger. It's more and more difficult for a Belgian club uh, to catch results, positive results in those competitions than uh, we have to to consider any solution. Do you think other regions might look for you for inspiration? Scandinavia, Scotland, Ireland? I suppose so, but uh, perhaps they'll achieve their uh, merge before us. Well, I look forward to following the progress of those talks on the potential creation of the Benny League. Pierre Francois, CEO of the Belgian Pro League, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you very much for your interest. Nice weekend. And you have a good weekend. Enjoy the football. Well, joined again by Martin Ziegler and Tarek Panja. Tarek, what do you make of this plan for the Netherlands and Belgium leagues combining? I think it's a really um, good idea, one that's kind of necessary if you look at football finances. They think it could generate 400 million euros, a competition like that. And, you know, with with the um, current setup, those leagues are, are diminished and diminishing, uh, you know, over the over recent years. Putting them together seems to make sense, um, and I think they can also sustain uh, a domestic competitions below them. Um, and it also adds perhaps the the chance for the teams like you know Ajax, um, Anderlecht, Feyenoord, etc., to 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 sort of raise their profile to to what they perhaps not to the level they were at in the great old days, but to compete again, with some of um, the teams in Europe's larger markets. Um, and perhaps, Martin, they're, they're, if this if this takes off, perhaps we're going to see others. There's talk about leagues in, in Scandinavia as well for, with the same rationale. Yeah, so it is a, a fairly key moment because I think the, the international football authorities in, in the past have always been a bit um, reluctant to, to sanction this. But it, this now is going ahead. Um, you you look at other countries. I mean, even Scotland, for example, would they want to? You know, they, so much, so much has been talked about over the last twenty years about the old firm joining the Premier League or something like that. But if there was actually a a, a concerted merger, I mean, I think I think that's a lot less likely. But um, it's re- I think it's really interesting, and I think it it you could now see the 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 Benny League or whatever it's called. Um, actually taking taking off and becoming quite strong perhaps you know rivaling portugal for example in terms of its stature um and in terms of european places that could be quite important and also you have the international footballing organizations also talking up um international competitions like this for example we had fifa um at least for the last two years from 2019 since gianni infantino just suddenly dropped the idea randomly that there was going to be a Pan-African Super League, part of the FIFA takeover of Africa, it seems. Um, and and if, if you have an organisation like FIFA that is backing a um, cross-continental league, that will give promoters of, of competitions like that 
in other region, another in other regions, excuse me, um, more confidence that they could pull something like that off as well. Especially so when we've got Gianni Infantino now talking up the prospect of a combined United States Mexico League. He said after the FIFA Council meeting uh, this week that it could well become the best men's league in the world. Well, Tarek, thanks a lot for your time again this week. Martin, some closing thoughts on the other pressing issue for FIFA and world football. The international break that continues, at least in some parts of the world, during the pandemic. Yeah, so the South Americans have already cancelled theirs um, because the European clubs were saying they weren't going to release their players. it looks like most of the European ones are going to be unaffected now. For example, Portugal have been taken off the red list of countries for, for as far as the UK is concerned. Um, that, but there are still, I think, some issues around in, in Africa with the African Cup of Nations matches um, where France, for example, saying they're not going to release players to that um, or to anyone playing in matches outside the EU. Well, we'll be keeping a close eye on it all, Martin. Thanks as ever. And thank you all of you for listening, the ever-growing numbers of you from around the world. If you've got any thoughts, tweet us at Sport Unlocked, email us, sportunlockpod at gmail.com. We're always welcome for any of your thoughts and especially things we could be talking about in future episodes. If you're really liking us, grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe to us on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Enjoy the sports viewing in the days ahead and thank you for listening. Thank you.